Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Each tree, Luke will soon explain, is known by its own fruit. When Gabriel speaks the command of God, a prophet is born of Elizabeth to turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Likewise, at Gabriel's command, the Messiah is conceived in Mary's womb to reign over the house of Jacob forever. The words of God bear good fruit, ushering in life, hope, liberation from bondage, and the kingdom of the heavens without end. And then there's the decree of Caesar Augustus. As the words of a shepherd gather his sheep, the words of Caesar divide them sending each to his own city to be sorted, counted, and prepared to devour one another for the glory of Romulus. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 3. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 458 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I had a beautiful conversation just this week, Richard, with a brother priest about Father Paul's thesis regarding shepherdism. And we were chatting about the conflict, really, between the city and the wilderness, and the distinction between institution and tribe and the way in which tribe is preferable on the one hand, but how tribe becomes institution when you protect it or add to it. And in fact, it's something I'm working on in my current project. The minute you try to defend or elaborate on family or tribe in any way, it becomes and evolves into city. That's the difficulty. In fact, the whole origin of king, city, and religion in the ancient world comes out of patriarch and tribe. So the two are interrelated. It's just the city made by the hand of man is the ultimate permutation of the thing we start to elaborate on and protect, which is the flock that God gives us in the wilderness. So we had this wonderful conversation but it relates very much to our discussion today of Luke chapter 2, verse 3, because when we find ourselves in our natural setting as members of a flock under God's care in the wilderness, and we accept that lowly state, to borrow from the Lucan terminology, at least as it's rendered in English, 
we find ourselves commingling with our neighbors at the midbar. We don't own anything. We belong to the voice of the shepherd, but we don't have fences. We don't have boundaries. We don't lay claim to anything. Everything is shared, and we intermingle with one another. This is the Matthaean proposition of what it means to be neighborly. You are out among the other inhabitants of the land, not just human beings, but all of God's creatures. We share everything. We commingle. This is what it means to be neighborly in the biblical conception of a neighborhood. So it follows here in Luke that if you are submitting to Caesar's view of neighborhood, the view that is imposed by the census carried out by Quirinius, it is going to somehow come into conflict with this setting in the universe of shepherdism as it's conceived by scripture. Remember, we're talking about shepherdism in scripture. We're not talking about political ideology or some sociological system that you're supposed to extract and employ and impose. We're talking about literature. And in this anti-history and this world that Luke is presenting, the history that the character of Caesar Augustus in Luke's framework is rolling out onto the planet is going to result in the opposite reality of what shepherdism offers us. The tribe works when it's about the tribe and not about the ego. The shepherd can only function when it's about the flock, not when it's about his ego. The ego is the source of destruction for the tribe, because the point of the tribe is that everybody needs everybody else to survive. If I take myself more seriously than you, when I'm in need, I might be out of luck. If when you're out of luck, I don't take care of you, I could be out of luck around the bend. And so the tribe is all about making sure that everyone is taking care of everybody else. That's how it works. I love in the patriarchal narratives in Genesis, how everyone meets at the well and you've got such a big stone over the well that it requires multiple people to move the stone. And that means that you have to have a certain kind of, I won't say brotherhood, but at least relationship with people just to make sure that the sheep can drink cooperation is necessary for survival. And the shepherd functions similarly. The shepherd requires the flock in order to eat. I'm not talking about divine shepherdism. I'm talking about human shepherdism. They require the sheep in order to eat, and so they keep watch over the sheep. But they can't take themselves too seriously. Oh, I'm still sleepy. Oh, I'm too afraid of that bear. They have to go and take care of business, and they have to be willing to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the flock because they probably have other people who are depending on this flock besides them. So there's always this interdependence. Now, when you talk about the city father, you know, archaeologically, we know what the origin of the city was. The origin of the city is the wall. You put a wall around your stuff. You put a wall around your people. So you are keeping yourself safe from critters, 
from beasts of the wilderness or from your enemies who may try to eat your stuff or you. That's why you put a wall around us in order to protect yourself. When it becomes about self-sufficiency and protecting oneself from the obligation to the neighbor, i.e. your village has plenty of food in the next village. And when I say village, these are very simple kinds of walled compounds. The other village is short on food. You don't have to give because you've got a good enough wall that they can't take. And once that happens, there's no longer interdependence. And now the city becomes the ego. Once the city is the ego, then the one who rules the city is the ego of the city. And once that happens, then tribe is gone, and it's about ego and power and politics. And politics, as we know, comes from the Greek word polis, which means city. So it becomes political, namely urban, which is the Latin word for city. That's what it's about. It's about the city taking care of itself to the exclusion of its neighbors, and therefore those in the compound, inside the compound, you have the palace temple complex, which has its own wall around it, right, to protect the ruler's stuff. So you have a wall, but then you grow and grow and grow and grow, but once the wall grows, then you have a wall inside of that to protect the stuff from the people outside of the little wall inside the city, right? And that's how it always builds out, the power grows out, but then there's always that ego at the center that wants to protect itself. It's always about protecting itself to the exclusion of those outside, as opposed to to the obligation or the duty to those outside. When it's sheep and shepherd and your and your and your family is counting on it, you're willing to do a lot and set aside your ego. When you've got everything you need and someone comes from outside to ask, eh, maybe you'll answer, maybe you won't answer. This is the difference between shepherdism and the city. It has to do with the ego. We've noted many times, and this comes out of your work on the Book of the Twelve, that whenever human beings organize to survive, which is a natural tendency, that is when our problems begin. And the trick about subsistence living is you're not organizing to survive. You are together and you are supporting each other and you are loving one another. You are obeying the voice of the shepherd, following his voice in the wilderness, obeying the command to love one another out of deference to Christ, which is you know, Paul's command as he wields the spirit. But you are not taking initiative to organize, to defend, to organize, to elaborate, to organize, to create, to organize, to build, which is our natural tendency as human beings in order to survive. And that is what causes suffering in the minor prophets. That is the impetus behind empire. You know, it's so difficult. It's so difficult to explain this to people. And perhaps our Thanksgiving episode is an opportunity to take this excursus. I was watching a German documentary on Monothos just recently. And it was interesting. You know, Richard, that I enjoy the Byzantine music and the setting culturally 
the way that the monks live and so forth. So I took some time to watch this program. And there were two quotes by two different monks that the program focused on at the beginning and the end of the presentation. One was the human desire to achieve, and the other was the human desire for permanence. And for me, as a man of scripture, it was heartbreaking that this was the teaching that was presented as the context for a documentary on Monothos. But then why should I be surprised? Because Monothos is an island covered by buildings. So the teaching that was presented wasn't a scriptural teaching, it was a Hellenistic teaching. Human achievement and the human striving for permanence. When scripture is about human subsistence, human transience, under the caring guidance of the voice of the shepherd, who is the only one who does not die, who is the only one who is permanent, upon whom we depend for everything. So this point about the ego is critical, but it's not psychological per se. It has more to do with accepting the fact that man's days are as grass. So what are you protecting and what are you building? Accepting that man's days are as grass isn't about human psychology per se, because if we delve so much into egoism and hubris and humility and all of this, it's only part of the story. The bigger part of the story is accepting our transience so that we focus our efforts on something that does count. That is the meaning of the resurrection, focusing your efforts on something that does count and that does not rot, which, as the prophet Isaiah teaches us, are the words of our God, which stand forever. That is the proclamation of the resurrection for which we give thanks on this day. So when we hear that the result of the command of Caesar Augustus, executed by the acolyte of Romulus, is as follows, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. We hear, for those of us who are scriptural, something anti-scriptural, something working against the gospel, which is the Pauline definition of Satanas, an obstacle to the gospel. The gospel is the call to the Midbar. It's calling us from the Midbar. It is the words from the Midbar calling us to submit to the voice of the shepherd, to be neighborly with our neighbors, and to give thanks for that kinonia at the Midbar. And the command of Caesar Augustus is to separate us, to divide us, which you've said many times, Richard, is what politicians do. They divide the polity into our own cities to be registered. It reminds me of the Hunger Games. It's the same thing. Or rather, the Hunger Games remind me of what Luke's character here is doing to the polity. It's the body politic of Jesus Christ, and he's dividing it so that it can be poisoned, controlled and prevented and separated from the love of God. 
it's very clear if you're hearing the text in context of the biblical teaching. The basic unit for the Roman Empire to measure is the city. In order to do a census, you need a city, just like if you're going to do a census in the United States, one of the hardest populations to count are homeless people, because where are they? And where they are today might be different from tomorrow. We know people who worked on the census, and we know how difficult it can be because people move and that sort of thing. What what do you mean difficult? Is it difficult that people move? No, that's what it means to be pastoral as you're moving from one place to the next. The Roman Empire, just like the United States, needs everyone to have a permanent address. If you don't have a permanent address, then, you know, how do we count you? And then how do we know how many people there are? The United States, if you move from one state to the next, well, the funding that the United States hands out depends on the state, and the state is counting the people depending on what city they live in. This is how it works in the modern day. It's not that different. When Caesar Augustus wants everybody in the world, and when we say the world, we're talking about the ecumeni, the uber household from ecos, right? The uber household is not cosmos, not that world. It's the ecomeni, which is the entire world of the Roman Empire, the entire household of the Roman Empire. It's all broken down by city. You have to have people go back to their city because if you're going to count them, they have to be at their permanent address. They have to be at their family address. They have to be at their tribal address. Their tribe and their identity is based on their city, according to the Roman Empire. And so they have to go back to their original city in order to count them. That's how it works. So identity and the city were just taken for granted in the Roman Empire. I mean, just like, you know, in Germany, it's only recently that there's been a country called Germany. Before that, it was a kind of cluster of cities. And even called them city-states because they ran themselves similarly to how we think of little countries now. And each had a prince and everything. And they even had different languages. You could go from one to the next, and you could hear the dialect as you move from one city to the next. There is an identity there according to city. And that was the Holy Roman Empire, you know, until a few hundred years ago. We have to realize that there's something human about being identified with this city because when you're in this city, you've got control. You've got your people, and you've got your safety dependent on those walls that define the border of your city and then what is outside the city. I would go so far as to say that when people are so concerned about the psychology of ego, it's a trap. It's a trap. It's another kind of obsession with human achievement and permanence because the human being is passing away. The only question is what counts in life? What counts? The life of your neighbor, taking care of the neighbor according to the command of the shepherd. So it's the commandment that counts, the proclamation of the commandment, the continuation of the commandment, the fact that the commandment must stand for the generation not yet born. If you become preoccupied with the psychology of ego, you're dancing on this very thin line of self-preoccupation and self-achievement, which is not what we're talking about in Scripture, the perfection of the human being. 
That's not what it's about. That's Hellenism. That's dangerous. You're not achieving anything. The question is, what stands in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What is the mission? What are we fighting for in the proclamation of this teaching? That's, I think, maybe a good place to stop for today, Richard, and something to think about. And if you land on the right answer, something to give thanks for. Happy Thanksgiving, Richard. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.